This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This is a podcast where I swap stories and compare notes about all things to do with leadership with some of the biggest names in sport. Today, my guest is former Ireland and British and Irish Lions captain, Paul O'Connell. And it's another good one, packed with leadership insights. We think of leadership as driving standards, but if you're driving standards by embarrassing people or humiliating them or making them feel bad about themselves, it's not leadership, you know. A lot of the leaders in Munster, we would have actually been copying Roy Keane. He was their best player because he was this relentless, driven leader that didn't accept any low standards off anyone. I brought that enthusiasm to the job. And I think when you have enthusiasm and you love it, you can make mistakes and people tend to forgive you because they understand your heart is in the right place. Hi everyone, and thanks to all of you who've listened to the first few episodes really appreciate the feedback and all the messages so make sure you keep them coming my guest today paul o'connell somebody who has inspired me as a youngster from being a teenager i've watched him play in european cup finals as a captain for the british irish lions and i actually had the privilege not just to play against him on many occasions whether it was for my club and for wales when we played ireland but i managed to go on a lions tour with him in 2013 where i was captain he's a true inspiration a fantastic leader one of the all-time great leaders in in my opinion and respected by everybody worldwide and i absolutely love this episode and I hope you do too. Pleasure to have you on, mate. How are you doing? Uh, very good, Sam. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Ah, nice one. Thanks. Well, it's, it's an obvious one for, for you to jump on. But what I wanted to know, because I think there's a lot of people who've been captains who might have had a good run at it for four years, you know, a little bit of success. You had a serious amount of success for a long time. What was the personal drive as you went through your career and from what kicked you off? My biggest strength was I was very competitive. You know, I, I don't think I was an amazing footballer by any means, but I was very competitive and always have been from a very young age. You know, always always wanted to win, always struggled badly with losing, always wanted to be good at stuff, you know, whatever it was, uh, whether it was school or whether it was sports, I was very, very competitive. And that was my biggest strength. And I grew up in a sports mad house. So I love sports. And, and, and I eventually ended up playing rugby. I didn't play rugby for, for a long time when I was young. But I really took it up seriously when I was about 16 and, uh, and uh, channeled, I suppose, all my competitive instincts then into rugby. I would have been a very curious guy as well, probably similar to yourself, you know, always looking for ways to improve and ways to get better. And while I was competitive and always wanted to win, I probably moved on from winning very quickly or moved on from, you know, the way you have goals to get picked for a certain team and then you get picked I'd move on to the next thing very quickly, which would be to make myself a mainstay of the team or, or to get picked for the national team or, or then it's to get picked for the Lions or whatever it is. So I think that the reason I stayed playing for so long and was so competitive for so long and maybe captain for so long is was that competitive nature that I had that is probably still part of me, but has, has probably mellowed and matured a little bit now. Your playing ability, I'm sure, was would have been clear for people to see from a young age you were coming through the system and obviously for people like myself as well as opposition players. At what point when you came through did you realise, when you sort of look at yourself like, oh, I, 
I, I could probably make a good captain or was being captain something you never aspired to be? It's definitely not something that I didn't aspire to be. I came late, so I played a little bit of under 10s and under 12s rugby, but I was big into swimming, so I, I gave it up for a while. I went back playing at 16, and when you go back playing at 16 after not playing for so long, you're behind. So I was always saw myself as an underdog that was always trying to catch up on other people. You know, I played a load of sports when I was young, so I was pretty athletic. And then once you start playing with good players and start getting coached by good coaches, if you have that ability, you can improve really quickly. And that's what happened to me. And, um, you know, I would have done a bit of debating in school. I would have, you know, we would have always had robust arguments and conversations at home and always been encouraged to, I suppose, lead a little bit and do the right thing. So that was probably maybe a little bit part of me, but I would have never gone into Munster. You know, I got a contract with Munster and I was thinking, I don't know how long this will last. Professional rugby was only really starting. You know, I never went in there thinking I want to be captain of Munster. I went in there and there were these amazing leaders and amazing characters that I just copied and there was a great environment that made you, you know, encouraged you to lead, encouraged you to have an opinion, encouraged you to be professional. And I suppose on the back of that, then by copying some of these guys, I ended up becoming or monster would have seen leadership potential in me. And I suppose I would have become part of the leadership group. And I actually captained Ireland before I captained Munster just for one off game when Brian O'Driscoll was injured. And, and then I ended up taking over from Anthony Foley as captain at Munster. I want to talk about Munster because there's going to be some listeners who perhaps aren't avid rugby fans, but Munster, even now, is still sort of revered that generation before you and your generation as well as a very iconic province and successful team who were the good people that you saw in that environment and what did they do that you probably didn't see before you got into that setter well the first captain I had would have been Mick Galway who when I came into the team I was 21 he was 35 years of age he wouldn't be what you'd imagine with a captain now you know I think as a captain now you have to have a real commitment to to excellence to you have to have a love of training and and all that Mick Galway certainly didn't have that he did <laughs> the least amount of training you possibly do but he loved Munster he loved what we stood for he absolutely loved the lads that played with him you know from the old guys that were his best mates like Peter Clossy and Anthony Foley to the young guys that came in, you know, he loved the young guys that came in, especially if you were, you know, if you were a good player, but also if you had a bit of fun and a bit of mischief about you. And he just created this amazing environment whereby, you know, we felt that playing for Munster was the most important thing in the world because this absolute legend of Irish rugby thought it was the most important thing in the world. You know, when you go into a new school or, or, or something like that, there's a bit of a pecking order and you're trying to figure out where your place is and it might take you a year to figure out where you sit. When I went into Munster, even though the guys, to me, were absolute legends of, of the game, Nick Galway, Peter Clossy, David Wallace, Rona Garrett, Peter Stringer, all these guys, I never, ever felt like I had to figure out where I stood with anyone. I, I felt unbelievably at home from the first day I walked in the door and that was the kind of environment Mick Galway created as a captain and you know I, I would have realized that I would have loved my training loved getting better so I would have realized that that was one part of the game not to copy from Mick but 
every other part of how he led the group and captained the group was everything you'd want to emulate as a captain, even to this day. I've done a couple of games at Munster, and I turn up and uh, to do commentary now, and I turn up and I just think, wow, like you said about those players making out that it felt the best place to be in the world at Munster. It seems like the fans have that as well. What did you feel was your role and responsibility as captain? Obviously, you wanted to continue that, but how did you treat the captain at Munster? Because you did it for a long time uh, and you followed all these great people. What would have been the pillars of your captaincy then while you were at Munster? What did you want to continue? And was there anything else you wanted to bring in and add to that? I probably didn't think about captaincy deep enough, um, certainly back then, uh, you know, and I know that before I came on, I know that you had discussed that you had a compass for your captaincy. And when I read that in the email, I was thinking, crikey, I I wish I'd had that. (laughs) But really, the main thing is just copying what I saw from other people and, and copying what I liked and saw. Like one of the good things and maybe one of the bad things for, from my captaincy, you know, we had Roy Keane at the time was playing for Manchester United, who, who were the biggest club in the world. He was from Munster. He used to go, go to some of our games. And, you know, he was probably one of, if not the best player in Man United. And, and he wasn't... He wasn't the best player because he had one or two moments of brilliance. He was their best player because he was this relentless, driven player, this relentless, driven leader that, you know, didn't accept any low standards off anyone. And he would have come and spoken to us a few times in Munster. And a lot of the leaders in Munster, we would have actually been copying Roy Keane. And it was brilliant in some ways because we were such good friends. It was pre-social media. It was at a time when there was probably a lot more drinking going on as well. There was less of a, a camera on you and what you did outside the game. So we were very, very close friends. And because of that, we could be really, really tough on each other. We felt that's what Roy Keane did. That's what we had to do. We were really, really tough on each other. And it was a brilliant way to be because we knew each other so well. But over time, the squad changed and people started socialising less and less. It became more and more professional. And I don't think that was the way to be anymore with one another. But we probably were still being a little bit tough on one another even though we might not have known some of the younger guys in the group and it's one of the big things you know Andy Farrell even would talk about with Ireland is is leadership is you know you gotta always ask yourself how am I making people feel so if you if you're the guy that's really tough on people there's nothing wrong with that you, you just have to say it in the right way and just be cognizant of how you make people feel if you're the guy that that says nothing but trains the house down and gives a great example that's still brilliant because people get confidence from that. People can copy that. So that would be one of the things from that era that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed that we had such great trust in one another that we could argue and disagree and disagree agreeably and and be quite tough on one another. I wish we'd evolved it a little bit over time and been a bit more cognizant of how we were making people feel as young guys came into the squad. So in terms of me, uh, Enthusiasm was probably one of the biggest things I brought to it. I I loved it. There wasn't one bit of being a professional rugby player I didn't enjoy, whether it was training, whether it was meetings, whether it was the gym, the matches. I struggled to enjoy the matches in terms of the nerves, but 
but I, I did love it. Um, the night before games, the travel, staying in hotels with a group of mates, there wasn't one bit of it I didn't enjoy. So I brought that enthusiasm to the job. And I think when you have enthusiasm and you love it and people know you love it, you get away with a few bits and pieces. You can make mistakes and people tend to forgive you because they understand your heart is in the right place. I think a commitment to excellence is something you need to have nowadays as a captain. You know, Mick Galway yeah. was that old school captain for us, but you need to lead in terms of how you prepare yourself, how you help prepare the team, how you help prepare others. You need to have that commitment to excellence and having very high standards as, as an individual. I know there's all sorts of different words for it, inclusivity and stuff like that, but f friendship was massive for us. We, it, In the Irish provinces, we're lucky, and, and it's probably very similar in the Welsh provinces and, and maybe less so in, in English teams and, and French teams because the transfer market is a lot more active over there. But a lot of the Irish provinces tend to stay together a lot longer. So that friendship as a group, I think, being friends with the guys, being friends with the staff, as a captain now, not as a coach, even though that's important, but it's different as a coach. But being friends is really important, especially if you want to, you know, if you want to help people get better, if they know that you care about them a little bit, they, they feel you enjoy their company. I think that friendship piece is really important. And 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 then finally, I think it's a new, it's a new word that has come into leadership recently is, is, is vulnerability, you know, not, not being afraid to make mistakes, not being afraid to mess up now and again and, and being able to hold your hand up and apologize and move on. I think if you try and be... You know, if you try and be perfect as a leader or a captain, if you try and be really articulate all the time and you try and say the perfect things all the time, you, you, you trip yourself up. It's hard to be genuine and, and authentic if you're doing that. So I think not being afraid to make mistakes, being a bit vulnerable is, is really important. You mentioned before that you didn't maybe think about captaincy when you were younger because I had quite a lot of help, you know, and they, that the captain's compass was one of them. But you needed no briefing and you give me a captain's compass, which shows <laughs> the level of organisation that you have. When Roy Keane came in, just wanted to just go back a little bit on that because that's really interesting. I had no idea, actually, that he was um, had any interest in rugby, no, never mind Munster. Did, did you meet him personally or was it just a sort of thing he came and watched from afar? And if he did meet personally, was there anything that you remember discussing? No, I, I've met him personally a few times. It's funny, you know, when he was doing his uh, FIFA badges, Ireland were playing New Zealand and you had to, they had to visit another team. And rather than visiting the Irish rugby team, he went and stayed a week with the New Zealand <laughs> rugby team. But, but, but uh, we went out for dinner with him, myself and a few of the lads. But I remember he told Ron Nogara, he said, uh, listen, I can't tell you anything they've been saying in camp, but... I can tell you one thing, they'll be coming after you. Uh, <laughs> which which every team which every team did, you know. But uh Oh Wales certainly did, yeah. I get yeah, that. Unbelievably nice guy, really articulate. You could identify with everything he said, you know. He 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 just wanted to win. He wanted people to have the same drive as him. And I always really enjoyed him. He came and spoke to us in, in Munster one time. We were I think we were playing sale the next day, but I remember a few guys were playing Monopoly when he arrived in and they, they stayed sitting around the Monopoly table because they didn't want to they didn't want the money to change or anyone to steal anything. So I think he thought that maybe they continued playing. He was a little bit insulted by that. And also we used to carb load the night before a, a game and I remember Declan Kidney used to have a saying that sometimes a bit of what's bad for you is good for you. So we were allowed to have pizzas the night before a game and 
he was going through this real phase at the time. He was talking about his body fat. I don't think he was eating any red meat. His body fat was down at 4%. It was oh. off the chart stuff. And and as he was talking about all this stuff, about 30 pizzas arrived into the room. <laughs> um, but it was he was talking our language. It was everything that we, that we believed yeah. we stood for. We believed at the time we were such good friends. We trusted each other so much that... We could be really tough on each other. And I know some of the, when you go on the Lions tour, some some of the guys get pissed off at the Irish guys because they give out so much to each other. But that's you what do, we yeah. believed in. Yeah, that's what we believed in. And, and, and it's the same in the other Irish provinces. And, uh, and I think we've tempered that since we found a good balance with it. But back then, in the, in the Munster change room, you know, we didn't hold back on each other at training. If you didn't know stuff, we didn't hold back on one another. And people didn't take it personally. We this thing, when, whenever it did get a little bit heated, we used to have this kiss and make up where we'd all gather in a circle. I'm sure every team does it, but we'd all gather in a circle and whoever got into an argument, they had to kiss on the lips before training would finish. <laughs> and... You'd probably, I didn't uh, know that. From a HR point of view, every other business in the world, you'd be in jail for it. But it was our way of saying it, it stays on the rugby pitch. It's you Love know that. we'll be tough on each other, but it has to stay on the rugby pitch. You can't bring it off the pitch because when you have to kiss someone on the lips, it generally ends up being a bit of a fun, a bit of a laugh. So <laughs> that was an important part of what we did. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and former Ireland and British and Irish Lions captain, Paul O'Connell. So on Ireland, uh, the captaincy for Ireland, which you captained 28 times. When you're captain of Ireland and the Six Nations, I imagine it's very similar for when, uh, say, I'd be captain for Wales. Say if you lose, for example, the day off you have after or in the week after. Like I used to go walk the dog in the middle of nowhere just to get away from people because obviously everyone would want to quiz me on, on why the game was lost and it's hard to escape how did you find that being captain of a of a nation, a very passionate Irish nation? And what did you do to perhaps try and get away from some of the pressures and the relentlessness of, of being a national captain? I wasn't very good at getting away from it. I was hard to be around, I would say, after a loss. And I, as a captain then, I probably even took it more personally because I'd grown up, as I said, with Mick, Mick Galway, Anthony Foley, Keith Wood, these kind of inspirational captains who made teams great by sheer will or so yeah. we were made to believe like you know it, it, it wasn't the case they, they probably set a good example and they, they helped create a good environment and and there was probably a hundred other things went into the the success of their teams but that's kind of the story you were told so I would have definitely put myself under that pressure as a captain when I first started captaining Munster or captain in Ireland or whatever but I would have been quite poor really until I had a family and having a family gave me a proper bit of perspective and I know it's again it's kind of cheesy and everyone says it but it definitely worked for me Mm, having a group of people around who it didn't change who were very constant win lose or draw didn't really care about the match I'd also developed a little bit you know I'd read a good bit of John Wooden stuff the basketball coach from America and and his definition of success is the peace of mind and self-satisfaction that comes from doing everything you can to be as good as you can be and I really believed in that towards the end of my career so if we lost with me as a captain but if I was living by that I was able to say listen I'm 
there's no more I could have done this week. There's no more we yeah. could have done. You know, we have a few things to fix up. We'll get at it again on Monday. So, but early on in my career, I wasn't good at it. And and I needed to be back training as soon as possible. I needed to address it quickly and move on. You know, even I see it now, it's a big part of, I never realised as a player, it's a big part of recovery for players is being able to chat on a Monday and being able to say, look, you know, hold our hands up for a few things, coaches as well. It's a big part of the recovery process, kind of addressing a loss and moving on. A lot of, I find international coaches, deliberately don't pick a captain who's maybe captain of their club. They think it might be too much of a burden to be captain in both environments. How did you find juggling that? I know Brian O'Driscoll captained a lot as well. So you didn't do it all the time. You dip in and out. But how did you find it when you were captain for both teams? Was it quite intense? Did you need a, a way to escape or did you enjoy that? Yeah, I didn't do it all the time. I, I stepped down a, towards the end as captain of Munster. I, I probably don't behave a whole lot differently when, when I'm not captain. But I think there was a period definitely where I wasn't enjoying it, where certainly are periods around injuries where you're just trying to get yourself right and trying to play well and trying to get back playing as well as you can. The added burden of also having to lead the group used to annoy me a little bit. You know, I was a work rate player, so I needed games, I needed fitness to be able to mm. play well. And when yeah. I played well, I felt my actions and my words carried a little bit more yeah, more to them. I, I you know, I, I hated trying to speak to the group when I wasn't playing well, but when I just accepted that this was my role, you know, this is, you know, my role is for people to see how much it means to me to maybe help other people understand how much it should mean to them. And it didn't matter if I was not 100% fit or, or whatever it was. I, I just had to be really enthusiastic for the job and for playing for Munster or Ireland, whatever it was. When I kind of just accepted it that, that that's the way it is, I would no problem captaining both teams or captaining Ireland or captaining Munster because I'm, I'm sure you know there is a pressure to captaincy and very little about it is about what you say. But you do have to say a few bits and pieces during the week to the team, you know, you have to address them a few times and you're kind of racking your brains during the week around how to hit the right notes with that. And, you know, when you're struggling for a bit of form, that can be a bit of added pressure to your week that you yeah, don't really point. need. You know, there's some weeks there you you look at the player that and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with the guy that doesn't say anything all week and just prepares himself because they have a big role to play because players can copy them and how they prepare. But sometimes you'd look at those guys and go, ah, you know, I'd love that. I'd love not to be in a senior players meeting. I'd love to be just getting myself into the best possible shape I can, doing my work and then playing as well as I can on Saturday. So I went through a bit of that as a captain whereby it probably took a bit of the enjoyment out of captaincy. But once I just, there was a period there, I think it was around 2011 or 2012, where I just accepted it and said, this is, you know, this is what's expected of me. I'm not too bad at it. I, you know, I, I have bad weeks, but I hope I have more good weeks than bad weeks. And once I accepted it, it was never a problem. So if I had to captain Ireland and then go back and do Munster for a few weeks or, or whatever it was, it, it wasn't a struggle for me. With the, the speaking side of things, how did you plan those moments and how did you make sure that you did hit those right notes at the right times? 
most of my stuff would have been around work ethic, you know, looking after each other. And that stuff kind of came naturally to me. If we had a captain's meeting before we went somewhere, I might write down in my book a few things that I wanted to say. And then I closed the book and I just kind of let it happen then, whatever way it happened. And sometimes it sounded good. Sometimes it sounded pretty average. And other times it was just really short, you know. Brian probably, Brian Driscoll would have been a bit of both, a bit of technical stuff, and then a, a little bit of emotion stuff as well. So you had a pretty good example, a pretty good template that you could work off. By the time you're before the game, you know, all the work is done. You just want to, sometimes people just want to see how much it means to you and how important it is to you. And I think people enjoy that or, or get a little bit of something from that. Those were the captains that I had that I enjoyed. Like, you know, Anthony Foley used to, his lip used to very often quiver when he spoke to us in the, in the, the Clarion Hotel in Limerick before we went to Toma Park. And, you know, Anthony has died since, but crikey, I give my right hand to be back in one of those meetings, two minutes long, where he just, you know, he just let us know how much it meant to him and how much he, you know, how much he loved us and how much he was looking forward to us going to battle together and it made a massive difference to how we performed. I don't think I could have left the Clarion Hotel and gotten straight onto the bus without seeing Anthony Foley's bottom lip, <laughs> lip quivering. I don't think I could have played well. I don't think we could have played well and it, it meant a lot. So that was kind of the example that I had and that's probably something that I, I copied. You mentioned Brian O'Driscoll a couple of times, and anybody who will see Ireland and think of your generation, Paul O'Connell and Brian O'Driscoll are more often than not going to be two of the names that, that come up first. Both of you went on to captain the Lions. How did that duo work? Because you're both such strong, big, influential figures within Irish rugby. How did those, or how did yourself and Brian work so well in tandem at Ireland, and how was that relationship? When I think of my relationship with Brian, I always think of Mike, Mike Ross in, in the scrum at Ireland. You know, it, it's a great feeling to have when you have someone that is totally obsessed with their part of the game. So, like, Mike Ross was obsessed with the scrum. You know, whenever he played for me uh, as a captain or a, or a pack leader, which I very often was because Brian would have been captain, you're like, you know, you know that that part of the game is going to be really looked after because there's someone there that loved it, yeah. that wanted to own it, that wanted to take responsibility for it. So Brian would have had that maybe from me, from a forwards point of view, and that, you know, I was trying to deliver really good lineup ball. I was trying to upset a certain amount of the opposition lineup ball, trying to, you know, took pride in our mall defence or our mall attack and, and all that stuff. So so that was important. I, I would say he would have been a, a quieter captain than I was. He he picked and chose his moments, whereas I, I would be, you know, probably constantly on, on top of people. And you'd have to ask Brian, but I would say it was a good thing in that it allowed him to pick and choose his moments. And and I would have learned a lot from him as well. You know, he was very, not very different because it was still that era where the captain had a big role to play in terms of the emotion, but he probably picked and chose his moments really well and had a good balance between emotion and, and technical stuff in how he spoke. I want to talk about Lions captaincy now. So you were captain for Lions in 2009. I wasn't on that tour. I was still a pup then. And obviously I had the, the privilege to sort of play with you then in 2013. When you were picked for the Lions in 2009, you obviously had a, a massive amount of experience at captaincy, whether it was, you know, you've done it for Ireland, done it successfully at Munster. 
Did you see your role as exactly the same or because you're suddenly coming together with, you know, as the Lions say, the best of the best and you can play in a test team for the Lions and eight of those guys could arguably give, be given the armband. Did you enjoy being captain of the Lions? Would you rather have a team of leaders around you or would you prefer to be part of an environment like Munster, for example, where you were the sort of outstanding leader or did you love that challenge that the Lions give you of combining with others? I, fo- I found it hard, for sure. I definitely found it hard because I knew when you're in Munster or when you're in Ireland, you know the lads, you know they trust you, you know they, you know, you all believe in each other. Whereas you're on a Lions tour, uh, you know, I obviously have a thick Irish accent and we, we do it differently in Ireland. You're not sure what way anything is landing with people. But... I definitely didn't try to be something I'm not. I tried to do what I do with Munster and on the handful of occasions that I'd captained Ireland up to that, I, I tried to do the same in 2009. You know, I've been on the 2005 tour where Clive Woodward had just, he tried something different. There's nothing wrong with that, but it probably didn't work as well as he'd hoped. You know, it wasn't helped by losing some real big players and big characters early on in the test series. And we probably learned a few lessons from that 2005 tour. And I, you know, that night, and I don't know, are you the same as me? You're a good bit younger than me. But that 1997 Lions documentary, for, for guys my age, the Lions became an even bigger, mythical, amazing thing to be part of than it had ever had been before, you know. So I loved the Lions. So to have gone on the 2005 tour, and for me to be, I wouldn't have been a massively senior player. I probably became one when a load of the more senior guys fell down. But for the tour to have been such a disaster, for people to be talking about scrapping the Lions on our watch, you know, it was so tough to take. So in 2009, I think we did things differently. It was the first tour I remember, instead of striving to be more professional, we actually became less professional. (laughs) And we socialised a lot. I mean, I think Shane Williams was involved in the first five games because of injuries, and he went out on five big, big nights out after every one of them. And I remember Craig White, even in his first speech, Craig White was the S&C coach, showing us the sachet of Dior light and saying... Just lads, we want you to have a few beers together and get to know one another. Just do me a favor and drink one of these when you come in every evening. And, you know, for a lot of us, we didn't really need a second invite for that. So, uh, you know, they did other things. In 2005, I remember Clive had kind of done the same thing as he'd done in England, where there was a, there was a tactics room, there was a physio room, there was an eating room. And we were very spread out, whereas all the hotels on the 2009 tour they tried to take rooms where we could cram everything in together. So, you know, someone could be getting a massage beside you while you were eating your dinner, while there's a guy right there doing video analysis and there's three guys over there playing the PlayStation. I remember in Joburg, they put, I think, three jacuzzis in the outdoor area and and it was part of a sleep strategy, but it also meant people spent time together just was to get guys into the jacuzzi before bed at night. So you could come down in those first few days. There might be 15 guys all in three jacuzzis beside each other, chatting, spending time with one another. So there was this big investment in the old school value of becoming a team, you know, like all Warren Gatlin, Sean Edwards Mm. teams, Rob Howley teams, we were... Technically and tactically, we'd a, we'd a really 
good strategy and good game plan, but there was a massive investment in us becoming a group of guys that wanted to spend time with each other. And the Lions fans that were on the tour identified with how we played, how we played for each other and and how tight-knit as a group we were and, and how much fun we'd had as a group together. What aspects of the captaincy did you find hard? Again, it was probably similar to the situation with Ireland captaincy. You know, Martin Johnson would have been captain on the 1997 tour and was this uh. legendary leader who single-handedly pulled the group together to win the tour. That's the kind of story you have. And then, you know, in Ireland, we have Willie John McBride here, who was captain of the 1974 Lions and was on the 1971 Lions when they beat New Zealand. And he was captain in 1974 when they went unbeaten in South Africa. Mm. And, you know, even to hear Surya McGeekin talking about Willie John McBride, he still calls him skipper, you know. So you're kind of under pressure to, to maybe be this great captain that that all the Lions have had previously. And as well as that, I was definitely trying to be myself and nothing else because it's very hard to be good at something you're not. But at the same time, you're worried that your version of captaincy is very different to what other guys are used to, you know. So yeah. you're 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 speaking, you're saying stuff in meetings. I, I wouldn't have been overly worried, but it would have been niggling in the back of my mind. I know that I would have been determined to be myself, but at times maybe doubting if that was what the group required. But it, definitely always knowing that I had to do it this way. I had to to be me, you know, Ian McGeekin had picked me to do the job because of the player I was and the captain I was. I couldn't try to be something else. But you would have self-doubt there, as I'm sure you'd be aware. It's funny, you know, because that 1997 documentary, I watched it so many times. You know, there's people like Ian McGeekin. I, when I hear Ian McGeekin oh, speaking today, today yeah. it's I feel like I'm in the documentary. You know, <laughs> yeah, same, or yeah. even when the doc, you know, the the Scottish yeah. doc, Doc Robson, James Robson yeah. whenever he comes out to treat you on the field, I, I during matches, I, I used yeah. to say it to him like I'm saying. <laughs> Do you think this would be in the DVD, you know? Because he's just, <laughs> he's such a brilliant accent. And, uh... You said a great quote in 2013 on a Lions tour, which I don't know if you remember, but I know the coach at that time, and now he's Wales again, Warren Gatland, has used a lot since. He's used it in a Wales environment. Uh, but the quote was, make sure you be the best at all the things that require no talent. Yeah. So in the rugby context, that's getting off the floor, getting back in the defensive line, is that a quote that you sort of had up your sleeve or was that just you speaking spontaneously? Because that's something which a lot of people really, and it is, it's so true, but a lot of people use that quote now and that's that's obviously your quote. I think we were using it a lot at the time in Munster and, and possibly Ireland. When you look at rugby, you get into 100 battles in a game and, and if you're a guy that wins 75 of them, well, if you can now get into 120 battles and you're still a 75% player, you're not a better rugby player technically, but by sheer work rate, you're a better yeah. rugby player because you're yeah. winning more battles. So if you can keep winning those zero talent battles and you've a team that believes in that one liner and they, they try and live it, you know, you've a good chance in rugby matches. I think it's a really important part of the game. There's so many bits in the game that require no talent. They take a bit of mental toughness for sure and they take fitness for sure, but there's a load of zero talent moments in rugby and if you can be world-class at them, you, you can be a world-class player. In 2013 then, I was obviously a young captain and I didn't feel I should have been captain that tour. I thought it would have been someone like yourself, but you had a, a bit of injury going in, but 
it was really relieving for me when it was one of the first sessions. And I don't speak after every session. As you know, I'm quite quiet. I'm very much um, like super professional. I, I, I play really aggressive. And, and that's kind of what Warren liked about me. And I might address the team once or twice in the week. That's it. But we had a session early in the week and, and you sort of chipped in at the end, which, you know, for me, I was like, oh, yeah, brilliant. You know, I need people like this. And you just, and you sort of spoke really emotionally about what you wanted us to be as a pack, you know, physical, aggressive, work rate, all the things you spoke about today. And then when we walked off at the end, I didn't bat an eyelid. I just walked off, you know, great session. You came up and you were like, oh, Sam, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, <laughs> I was like, why? You went, oh, I didn't mean to, to butt in like that. But that's kind of like how me and Brian work at Ireland. I, Brian only speaks maybe towards the end of the week and I'm kind of, non-stop kind of driving the guys in the week I remember thinking oh no that's perfect like that's how Wales was with myself and Alan Wynne-Jones for example so to have that was brilliant how did you approach that 2013 tour you're not a captain but you had been captain for a Lions tour what did you see your role as being as you're obviously now into your 30s one of the most you're probably in the top five most senior guys and achievers in that group. How did you see your role in 2013 going into that tour? Well, yeah, I'd had a, I'd had an operation on my back on New Year's Eve, and I didn't know if I'd get back for it. So I felt there was no pressure on me. I just had to play as well as I could, train as well as I could, and try and put myself in position. You know, I didn't have any of your duties to do. You know, speaking. You know, even Wednesday, Saturday game, there's all sorts of functions. You're being welcomed into cities, and you have to speak. You've a lot of media. You know, I obviously wasn't going to go on another one. It was like being on summer camp. It was, you know, <laughs> Australia as well. So it was it was a brilliant tour and I, I just felt I was in bonus territory with very little pressure. I do actually vividly remember we were playing uh, in Brisbane, I think against Queensland Reds and you were playing and I, that was my first tour. So I was like, oh, there's all these lines around me. I'm still yet to sort of prove my worth in this team. I remember getting the boys in for my f- first sort of pre-match, just a little G up, you know. I remember looking across and it was both yourself and Brian. I remember I thinking, shit, you know, like, because I was like watching you, like I say you won the European Cup in 2006 for Munster. You know, you went on the 05 Lions tour. You know, back then I would have been uh, 16 years of age, you know, like watching yeah. these sort of icons, and all, you know, already iconic figures. Never mind another eight years later, then you're sort of patting in front of me. Did you kind of know you would have had that effect on perhaps some of the younger players? I, I always wondered that because I never played until I was in my mid-30s. And if I was playing now, I think I'd be very different as a person, as a captain to when I finished. I only played until I was 28. Did you know at, th- at the age of when you were 32, 33, 34, coming to the end of your career, you had that effect perhaps on, on some of the younger players in the group? I don't think I would have. I think probably we're all full of doubt, you know. I was probably thinking they all think I'm old and uh, <laughs> crap and I have to prove myself, you know. that's Really? Do you actually think that? Yeah, yeah I would say so, yeah. You know, wow. and, and you're probably thinking they think I'm too young, so yeah, I have to I prove was, myself, yeah. you know. So exactly. We're all... Yeah, our, our strength and conditioning coach is a great saying I, I trust myself because I doubt myself you know you, you, yeah. you doubt yourself so you, it makes you prepare it makes you it makes you keep an eye on things so that things aren't slipping but I remember that game I was on the bench for that game against the Reds and uh, the bench in, in Queensland is almost 
it's in the stand. But John Sexton and Adam Jones were on the bench as well. And Johnny Sexton has no shoulders, I'm sure you've noticed, but they, they, he was just getting abused the whole the game. The ketchup bottle, we used to yeah, call it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were shouting, Sexton, you've shoulders like a snake. They were shouting at him. And that. We were loving it. We were loving it. So with all this, uh, I kind of agree. You said you don't really think about captaincy too much when you're younger, and I didn't. I had a little bit of guidance, which was which I was fortunate for, but you sort of reflect on it a lot more sort of when you finish playing, and now you've gone into coaching. And as things are right now, you know, I've had an amazing coaching journey in Ireland are currently seeded number one in the world. What have you taken or what have you learned from the captaincy experience that you've gained as a player into your coaching career now, which you're doing so successfully? The biggest learning for me is is since I've finished or since I've gone into Irish camp, you know, Andy Farrell talks about leadership all the time. And and the first thing he says, it's about how you make people feel. So we think of leadership as driving standards. But if you're driving standards by embarrassing people or humiliating them or making them feel bad about themselves, it's not leadership, you know. So I think even the guy, again, the guy that's the quiet guy that is a really diligent trainer that is a great example for other people to copy that they can, you know, he's out early, he finishes late, he's really organized, he does his recovery. That's leadership. He makes people feel good that players trust him when they walk onto the field with him. Players can copy what he's doing. They can go and be a bit curious with him and ask him, what you know, what's your process here? What That's leadership because he's making people feel good as well. And that's been the biggest learning for me since I've come out of the game. I think as well, being yourself and, you know, you won't cover everything, but you'll have plenty of other guys. If you're unsure of some of the technical stuff, you can just hand over to one of the boys in the meeting. If you're unsure on something, you just got to be able to do that so that you can, so that you can be really good at the things that you were that puts you in the position to be captain in the first place. So being yourself, being authentic or genuine or whatever word you want to use is is really important as well, I think. I think that's a great place to finish. And I guess the best compliment I could pay yourself would be I was asked to do a, a 15 of players that I've played with and you obviously made the team, oh, but you, you, you were my captain as well. Oh, you, know? you were, you were my captain. So, uh, so I, I had to sit that in. That's the biggest compliment I can pay. I think people listening over the last however many minutes can certainly see why. So, Paulie, honestly, thank you so much for jumping on. Pleasure to play against and with yourself and, uh, and all the best for the rest of this year in the World Cup as well. Okay, thanks, Sam. Appreciate it. Cheers, Paulie. Wow, I, I absolutely loved that. I really liked, actually, and it's something I try and do now in life after rugby. When you talk about Andy Farrell, the Ireland head coach, and what he tries to do himself is how you make people feel as a as a leader. And I could completely agree. I think you need to encourage and be enthusiastic rather than critiquing people and knocking them down all the time. I, I think trying to build people up and make them feel really good about who they are, how they contribute, and their ability and what good traits they have, I think is so important. I couldn't agree with him more on that. And what's also reassuring as well, you talk about you know the vulnerability of it, but not actually enjoying being captain sometimes, which I think we all feel as leaders or captains. It's not always plain sailing. And it's a good thing to sometimes be selfish, realise that I need to focus on myself because if I get my roles right, then I'm going to fit much better and contribute well to the team. And I also had no idea that Roy Keane 
was a Manchester and Ireland fan and um, that the Manchester players prioritised not losing houses on Mayfair compared to greeting him through the double doors of the hotel as well. But I absolutely love that episode. Reinforces my thoughts on what a great man Paul O'Connell is. If you want bonus captain's content, you can. We're calling it The Huddle. Every Thursday, I break down and explore different aspects of leadership that I learned throughout my career that helped me on and off the pitch. To join the huddle, just subscribe to Crowd Sports Plus on Apple. Not only will you get the bonus content, but you'll also get to listen to Captains ad-free. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. And finally, I'd love it if you got in touch with the show. You can do by emailing captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag CaptainsPod on social media. You can also find us on LinkedIn by searching Captains with Sam Walton. Next week, my guest is Leicester City's Premier League title-winning captain, Wes Morgan. And what a story that is. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.